Hello and welcome to the Yeshiva University podcast. My name is Zisi Turner. Today I'll be having a conversation with Ilana Kershan, author of If All the Seas Were Ink, a wonderful memoir published in 2017 by St. Martin's Press. Ilana is an educator and translator of books. Her writing has appeared in The Forward, Kfeller, and Tablet, among other places. She is a graduate of Harvard and Cambridge Universities and lives in Jerusalem with her four children and husband. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Sure. Uh, in your review of your book, the Wall Street Journal called Dafyomi the world's largest book club. Do you think this is a fair description? I think it's an excellent description, although I didn't really come to appreciate it until I was pretty far into my own Dafyomi study. When I first started learning, it was very solitary. I was just listening to podcasts alone in my apartment, following along with the volume of Gemara. I had no idea how many people around the world were also learning Dafyomi. And it was only when I first started attending a shir that I began to realize that Dafyomi was something so much larger than myself or even my community, that people all over the world were learning. I would fly on an airplane to go on a trip somewhere for work, and the person next to me, especially if it were El Al, would open their Gemara, and I would know exactly what page they were going to be on. And oftentimes, we would have a conversation. I've had many conversations with people. I remember having a long discussion with someone about killing Derech Aliyah and Derech Yurida that was very graphic and involved mention of specific kinds of knives and axes um, on a trip to the Frankfurt Book Fair. <laughs> so, so, uh, so for me, Dafyomi really became a point of commonality and a common language with other people um, and also made me realize at a time in my life when I was feeling very alone that I wasn't alone, that I was part of something much larger than myself. Did you have a background in Gemara learning before you started Dafyomi? Somewhat. Um, I attended a Salman Schechter school through the eighth grade. So we had learned Mishnayot in school. And I remember we used to act out Mishnayot. We were learning Nizikin. Um, I think we were doing Bavakama. And we would always, you know, we'd have like barrels and and sticks. And we'd run into each other and, you know, accidentally injure each other. And not <laughs> much to the consternation of the teacher. Um, but I remember, I also remember that we used to, we had certain chairs in the auditorium that we would say, you know, this is the Tuma seat. You can't sit in it. Like, I remember that the text was already coming alive for me from a very young age. Um, but then I went to a public high school, and I didn't really do um, academic Jewish study in college. It was only when I came to Israel I took an introductory Gemara class um, that gave me some background. We were learning one parak in the third parak of Moed Katan, and I remember that I really took it upon myself to basically almost learn that parak by heart, like really understand every suya thoroughly, and even if I didn't understand everything, be able to read it um, and 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 read it with a proper intonation and know where the questions were. And I think that learning one parak very, very well was the key to being able to learn all subsequent prakim. Anytime I would hear a particular phrase, I would I would say, wait, I know that came up in Moedakatan. I must know what it means. And I would basically just rattle off the whole line and get to my to understand what I was struggling with. So um so that was very key for me. And that was pretty much the extent of my background when I I started learning. So it's really interesting that you mentioned really wanting to learn a parak so well. So I was always wondering, Dafyomi is a very fast-paced kind of way of studying. How do you handle this tension of trying to keep up with the pace on one hand versus taking a deeper approach to the text on the other, this tension between the cute learning versus eun learning? 
Yeah, it's a struggle. Um, I think that, you know, Dafyomi, well, the Gemara is analogized to an ocean or a sea. And I always think to myself, well, as with an ocean, you can, you can swim in that ocean on many, many levels. You can access that on many levels. You can skim the surface, right? You can swim freestyle quickly across. You can swim underwater and take deep breaths. You can become a deep sea diver and go all the way down to the ocean and learn about all the flora and fauna, right? There are many different levels to access the text. And when you make a choice, it, it, everything is a trade-off. It comes at the expense of other things. Um, I do find it hard. I find it frustrating sometimes that I forget so much of what I learn. Um, and part of the way I deal with the rapid pace of Dafyomi is by trying to stop and write about what I'm learning because that enables me to take stock. So I have a project of trying to write a limerick for every Daf of the Gemara. Um, and because I find that once I have those limericks, I'm able to, I, I, I can summon various sources on demand because I remember the poem, right? The, the beautiful maiden girl said to all suitors who flocked, but I'm wed. And when every last dope had abandoned all hope, she married her heart's choice instead, for example. But I, anyways, and I, I keep them all on a website. Um, and that enables me to just make sure that no matter how fast I'm learning, I have to do some chazara. I usually write the limericks either at the end of the parak or when I come to the end of a masechet if I haven't been doing it all along. And that ensures that I go back. And generally what I write about, because as I learn, I take a lot of notes often in the margins, usually in the margins of the Gemara. Um, those notes also become my cue so that I know how, what was interesting to me, what do I want to write about? And then I don't have to reread the whole daf, but I'll remember, ah, this was fascinating. I'm going to write about this. Um, so I think that writing and, and, and teaching also is another way of ensuring that you go back and remember some of what you learn. Um, I try not to des despair too much about, about how much I forget. There's a beautiful midrash in Kohelet Rabbah about, um, uh, Shlomo HaMelech says, it's, it's a midrash on the pasuk, um, uh, I think it's upaniti anila dat chokma. I think, and and Shlomo says altikra paniti elapiniti that I I emptied myself out to know wisdom. Kesefel zesh and it malay b'shato v'nishpach b'shato, like a like a cup that right fills up and alternately fills up and is emptied. This is how Shlomo learned Torah. He would fill himself and then he would empty the and he would kachlamad Torah kachlamad Shlomo Torah umeshacha or something like that. Like he would so too would Shlomo learn Torah and forget it. That that the fact that we forget some of our Torah is not the end of the world. It, it, it's what ensures that we're going to spend our whole lives continually learning and continually engaging. And of course, every time we learn, we're not just recalling or relearning. We're also learning in new ways because we're different and the text reads differently. So uh, so that's how I deal with the with the frustrations of the in, the rapid clip of Daf Yomi. Um, as I was reading your book, I couldn't help but think about a small portion of text we say before at the Shema, Ki heim chayenu yameno because for they are our life and the length of our days. And I really appreciated how you intertwined your life story with the different sugiot. Was that a conscious decision you made as you were learning it to connect things that were going on in your life to what you were learning? Or is that something that emerged when you were coming back to your notebooks? Um, I would say neither. It wasn't conscious and it also wasn't something that happened after the fact. As I was learning, I was always struck by how the daf seemed to be, it's almost like a horoscope and the way that a horoscope um, can be at once a predictor and a reflection of your days, right? People open the newspaper, read their horoscope and the horoscope says, you're going to shine your light on someone today. And then they say, oh, that explains why I guess that because I was so nice to that old other mother in the playground, it must have been, you know, that was my shining my light, right? You read your narrative, the narrative of 
of your day into whatever your horoscope says. So that's what would happen to me with the DAF, where whatever was happening in my life seemed to be reflected in whatever DAF I was learning. So it happened, um, I, I write about this in the book, how my, my son lost his stuffed elephant doll and we had to get him a new one because he was panicked. He lost it in his school and uh, we got we managed to find the identical stuffed elephant and then his preschool teacher was able somehow to relocate that lost elephant. And then my son was bewildered by the fact that he now had two elephants. What had happened? We had told him that the one we had bought was you know, the original one that we had found. Um, and he was bewildered by this multiplicity. Well, that was right when I was learning Psachim and learning about the concept of a korban tamura. And I suddenly said to myself, now I understand this question of, you know, you know, you have this one animal and then you take this other animal and you replace the original. But what if you find the original? Ah, the hayahu tamura kodesh. Okay, now I understand. So both elephants are his elephant, right? And like, it wasn't that I was consciously trying to draw a parallel, but I understood and experienced differently because it unfolded against the backdrop of what I was learning. And then when it came time, when I was putting the book together, as I was writing about various sugyot, I realized how much my understanding of the sugyot I was writing about was informed by whatever was going on in my life at the time I was learning them. So that's sort of how those parallels emerged. Um, you were mentioning that you write limericks to remember what uh, you learned on each daf. Have you felt your love of literature has influenced your learning? Yes, to the extent that I think when we read, we bring we bring all our knowledge to bear on what we're reading. Um, and again and again, I'd be reading Gemara, and I would hear echoes of other literature that I loved, and it almost seemed, sometimes the parallels were almost uncanny. So I'd be reading about how Melech David didn't want to ever die, and when he was told he was going to die on Shabbat, he would spend all Shabbat learning Torah, right? So that, that the Malach HaMavit would not be able to take his soul. And I read this, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know, maybe I got up from the Gemara, and all of a sudden I would hear in my head Emily Dickinson's poem, Because I Could Not Stop for Death, He Kindly Stopped for Me, and I would realize, oh, I know why that poem came into my head, because that's exactly what happened with David. David didn't want to die, right? So uh, so he didn't want to stop for death, but ultimately death stops for him, and the, the Malach HaMavit rustles the leaves, and he looks up, and, and you know, Malachamavit can take his soul. So, uh, so I would hear, I would hear parallels of poetry that I loved. I think this would especially happen with Agada. I think there are a lot of parallels between Agadic narratives and poems in the sense that both are written in very concise literary units in which no detail is extraneous, right? Agadot are very tightly written. If there's a, if there's some detail in an Agadah that seems perplexing, baffling, often it's the key to unlocking the meaning of the entire Agadah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, and, and also meaning is rarely transparent. You read an Agadah and you have to really unpack it and there are multiple levels of meaning. I think that's also true of, of poetry, which is why you need so much white space for the words to breathe a little. Um, so I think that is also what inspired me to write poetry, but also to hear so much poetry in the Gemara. Also, I think that sometimes um, there's metered speech in the Gemara. You'll hear, um, you know, uh, I remember in Masechet um, often when people are, are quoted as speaking, they'll speak in meter like a, Annan shluche mitzvah annan uftu rin min hasuka, right? <laughs> yeah, there's, and I, and I don't know if that was done for mnemonic purposes, um, for if it relates to oratory, I'm not sure, but it seems I've seen noticed that on a few occasions, um, and that also makes the text more memorable and more poetic. In America, as opposed to Israel, there are certainly fewer institutions where women can learn Torah full time. How would you encourage women to take the step to start learning Gemara? 
Well, I think the more role models we have of women who are learning, the better. The more women can be taught by other women. I think that's also very powerful. Also, you know, even if it's not always practical, podcasts by women teaching Gemara. This cycle I'm learning from a a woman named Michelle Farber in Renata who teaches a Dafyomi shear called Dafyomi for Women. Um, what I like about her shear is that when she's teaching, if she wants to explain, you know, a particular scenario, you know, Rashi will always use, you know, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, you know, as many as Yaakov's sons as he needs to explain a particular scenario. So, you know, if Ruvain's, uh, Ruvain's ox falls into Shimon's pit, right? So she, when she's giving examples, she uses the names of the women in the class. So it will be, you know, if Shoshana's ox falls in Tamar's pit. When you hear that, you begin to imagine women as actors in the Talmudic drama. And I think that's very powerful for women. Um, to imagine themselves into the story and to be encouraged to write about them, write about their reactions as they're learning and to make their learning personal so that it stays with them. You are a translator. You've translated books by Rabbi Benjamin Lau and Ruth Calderon. How do you think your work as a translator has impacted how you learn? Well, I'm always thinking about audience and what register you're writing in. Um, I think when you're when you work as a translator, you're you're never just thinking about right. The, the the focus is not on the words itself, but on who you're conveying the words to, how you're conveying those words. Um, and I think that really influenced my writing because as I was writing, I was always thinking about well, you know, okay, well, who's going to read this and. It, how, how much explaining do I need to do? How much background do I need to give? What kind of knowledge do I want to assume? So I think that that informed my writing process. Um, I didn't want to think too much about that because the material in the book is so personal that uh, when I was writing a lot of it, I, I think I would have had to crawl under the desk if I imagined other readers um, for parts of what I was writing. And a lot of it I had written initially just for myself and not for an audience. But um, but when you work as a translator, you're also focusing maximally on how you're saying what you're saying and not on what you're saying. So in a way, translation is sort of – it's like warm-up exercises for being a writer because you can turn off the part of your brain that has to generate ideas or lay off the pressure on that part of your brain. And all of your focus instead is on how you're rendering the words, the artistry. Um, and I think that's that, that also served me well in writing the book, I think. I like to think. Um, no, I mean your your book of, your book is really a work of art in in my opinion. It's beautiful in its depth and in the scope of your emotion and your feeling. And I was struck by the fact that there really isn't much like it in the intersection of classical text and personal reflection. Um, I was curious to know how do you think literature like this should have a place within the sphere of English speaking Jewry. Um. Look, I think it would be meaningful if more people wrote about their Torah and their learning and took it more personally, because I think that, um, you know, Chazal say in Masechet Sukkah, that you have to make yourself naked before the text. You have to be willing to let the text resonate on your deepest levels, to be vulnerable before the text and let the text speak to you in in the places where you hurt and where you're grieving and and where you're not completely healed, um, which is what I tried to do in my book. Um, and in a way, for me, the whole process of learning Dafyomi really began as a coping mechanism, as a way of figuring out how to put one foot in front of the other by turning page after page in the Gemara. 
Um, and I'm very open about that in the book. Um, and I think if more people were willing to show, you know, to showcase both their shivrei luchot and their luchot, or, you know, to showcase their brokenness um, and share that, I think that that more people would would be able to heal, perhaps. Um, I think there are some works of of, of personal reflection. Um, certainly, I mean, I know, I know in the in Israel, Ari Elon writes personally about his encounters with with Talmudic Sugyot. Ruth Calderon in her book also um, has personal reflections on the various agadot she writes about. Um, but yes, I do think that the willingness to make oneself vulnerable and and to write about yourself um, enables you to reach more people, or or perhaps to reach people on a different sort of level. In your book, you view a lot of the sugyot through the lens of being a mother. I was wondering if you had any Talmudic parenting advice. Ah, <laughs> uh, um, well, so um, there is. I I love the story. Maybe I'll share the story about the death of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai when his disciples come to him, and they ask him for a blessing. And uh, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai says to his disciples. Um, that their their fear of heaven, their morat shamayim, should be like their fear of other human beings. Um, and his students look at him and they say, "Vitulo, like that's it. You know, our, we should only fear heaven as much as we fear other people." And uh, and Yochanan ben Zakkai says to them, "Ah, if only people had as much yirat shamayim as they have fear of what other people are going to think." And I I learned this. Um, it comes up in Masechet Brachot. Um, I remember learning at a time when I was spending a lot of time with my kids in the playgrounds. Um, we'd I'd pick them up at school, we'd go to the playgrounds, and then we'd come home and have dinner. And I remember that I always thought to myself, you know, I'm such a better parent when we're on the playground, when we're in public, when other parents are watching. I never yell at my kids, right? I never lose my temper because I don't want other parents to see me yelling. And then we'll get home. And I don't think it was just that I was more tired by the time we got home. I just didn't have that same self-checking mechanism, and I would lose my temper. Um, more than I wanted to. And I started to think about Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai's words. And I started to think, you know, there's all this talk in the parenting, I don't know, parenting literature of, uh, of helicopter parenting, parents who hover too much. And I began to think, well, what if instead of talking about parents who hover, we thought about those who hover over us when we are parents? And who is over, always hovering over us, of course, right? God. And what does it mean to imagine that? And then I thought of, um, there's a, there's a, you know, it reminds me of the Gemara, and I think it's in Chagiga, um, where Chazal talk about um, quoting up a sukkah Mishiau Hashemayim Kisivara Tadom Raglai, they say that um, that that if that ah uh, ah I know it's Kol Haover Avera Beseiter Kiilu Dochek Raglash Shchina. Anyone who sins in private, it's as if he's bumping up the, against the legs of the Shchina, as if God is sitting on a throne in heaven and God's legs are dangling down to earth. And, uh, and I began to realize, what does that mean? Because, you know, we often think that when we're alone, you know, oh, no one can see us. You know, we can get by with yelling at our kids or losing our temper or all the other negative behaviors that we wouldn't ever want to show in public or we'd be embarrassed if anyone were to see us. Um, but ultimately, it, it's actually when we're alone that we have the most capacity to be intimate with God because it's just us and God. And I began to try to imagine, you know, what would it be like 
to think about, you know, being hovered over as a parent. And I, I thought about that. And that night when I read my children, Goodnight Moon, I remember thinking, you know, the whole time I was reading the book to them and I kept thinking all the while about this woman, this old woman sitting on a rocking chair, rocking back and forth and whispering hush and sort of imagining her being with me all the time. And I found that very instructive. Along those lines, do you hope uh, to inculcate a love of Talmud to your children? And if so, how, how would you go about doing that? Um, none of my children are yet literate, but I, well, I mean, whatever, you know, the Gemara was not, is not the, is the product of an oral culture. So I suppose that's not a good excuse. Um, but yes, I do try to teach them. Um, I share with them stories that I'm learning. Um, I share with them. I try to teach them. We often start with, you know, we'll do Pirkei Avot at Sudash Lishit in our house. And I write music to various Mishnayot and I sing to them. Um, I do that often. I find it's that music is a very helpful mnemonic. Um, so I try as much as possible to um, to read aloud to my kids, to share with them whatever it is I'm learning. They know that I learn and they take an interest. Um, and I try to make the text relevant to them. So I share with them stories. I share with them moral principles. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, give them moral rebuke using <laughs> Sukhin that I've learned. Or, um, or you know, I'll, I yes, I so I'm, I'm frequently invoking invoking sources that I'm learning, and also just I make jokes that reference um, text I've learned. So yeah, I remember. I mean, this is silly, but my kids were fighting over a bag of pretzels, and I it was a big bag of pretzels, and I just opened up the bag, I put it on the floor, and I quoted from a midrash about um you know how there is keter kihuna and keter machut and keter torah, and Chazal say you know keter kuna is just for the kohanim, keter machut is just for the machim, but keter torah munachat lifnechem kol tol. So I said to the kids, like Torah, I said these pretzels are munachim lifnechem. Anyone who wants can come take them. Them. They're free for all. And uh, and then I told them about this midrash. And it was just an occasion. I mean, it was a silly thing. It was a fight over a bag of pretzels. But it became an occasion for teaching them about a midrash. So uh, I try to seek out those opportunities and to make it happen as naturally as possible. That's, um, I'm going to keep that in my back pocket. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> um, you clearly have a really deep and vast love of Talmud. I was wondering if you ever considered tackling a different corpus of traditional texts like Tanakh or midrash. Um, so I, I, yes, there's always more that I want to learn. I have done, I have learned through various collections of Midrash Rabbah with friends. Um, I went through all of Shirashirim Rabbah and Kohelet Rabbah, which I really should do again, because of course, as I said, you know, it's like the Sefel that you, you, everything pours out. Um, but yes, so I've been through, through various, um, um, various Midrashim, um, and I find that very interesting because, of course, there are so many overlaps. It's all from the same intellectual milieu. So there are a lot of overlaps in between Midrashim that I find in the Gemara, um, often different takes on those Midrashim or slightly different versions. Um, I'm also trying on this cycle of Daf Yomi to focus a lot more on the Mishnayot, um, in part for practical reasons, because it's hard to carry the Gemara everywhere, but it's not hard to carry Mishnayot everywhere. So, uh, so I have like the paperback Mishnayot that I just try like when I have time in between things, I try to just learn learn Mishnayot because I find that even if sometimes when I learn Daf Yomi on this cycle, I will sometimes just listen to a podcast. I don't always open the Gemara every day, but I do want to at least make sure I'm reading through every Mishnah because the Mishnah is really the anchor, obviously, for the rabbinic, for the, for the Gemara's conversation. Um, so I don't know if I would ever have the stamina to go through all of Mishnah, but I think doing it um, against the backdrop of Daf Yomi has been very helpful. 
Um, but I, you know, my passion is for Midrash Agadah. Um, so that's, 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 that's what I gravitate towards. But, um, but there is so much more that I have to learn and, uh, God willing. <laughs> <laughs> the sea is vast. The sea is vast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you prefer to learn alone or through Chavruta, paired study? Oh, in all sorts of combinations. Um, when I did Shira Shreem Rabbah, I used to meet with a friend. Um, we would sit. There's a cafe in Yerushalayim called Aroma. Um, so we called it Cafe Amora because um, <laughs> we would sit there and learn Amoraic Midrash. We still call it Cafe Amora. Um, so uh, so I've learned, and in the most unlikely of places, I've learned in Chavruta. Um, I think there, I, I do enjoy, and I, I have a regular Chavruta I learn now, learning Breshit Rabbah. Um, so I do very much enjoy that exchange. Um, for practical purposes, I think it's also helpful to always have a Chavruta with yourself because it's harder to make excuses when it's just with yourself, you know, with someone else. The, the timing cannot work out or there are all sorts of practical considerations. But when it's just you and yourself, usually um, you can find a way. So, uh, so and, and I love frontal shiurim. I, I am... Uh, I I've, I love being a student. I've always loved being a student. I'm really I love being in the classroom. I love just sitting in class and listening and taking notes from a teacher. Um, and I try to do that whenever I have the opportunity. So I, I suppose a combination of all. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> um, do you think that Gemara study is for everyone? It's kind of a simple question, but in terms of in in, in a broader way, do you think that anyone can approach the, the Gemara? straight away? Or should there be outside learning people take beforehand? Um, I think the text has something to say to everyone. And there are many different points of entry. And I, I truly believe that the more people that learn that, that these texts are really there are cultural heritage, and they belong to all of us as Jews. And that the more people learn, the more insights into the text we will find that no two people learn the text in the same way. Often it's people who are, uh, you know, I teach Agadah and I can say that in my classes, it's generally the students who are looking at the text with fresh eyes, who haven't seen it before, who maybe don't even know how the Agadah is going to end, who ask the most interesting questions, have the most interesting insights. Um, so I think that the more we can democratize learning and make learning more accessible, which in an age of the internet and podcasts has become more and more, uh, the more the more Torah we are creating and the more faces of Torah we are sharing with the world. So I would love to see more and more diverse groups of people engaging with texts, each in their own way, perhaps in their own language, with their own study aids or teachers or what have you. Um, but I do believe that that these texts have something to say to everyone. Yes. That really resonates with me. I'm, I, I'm in a program at Yeshiva University here, which is a, an all-women's program where we study Gemara and Halacha the whole day. When you mentioned that uh, to view the Torah through new eyes or fresh faces viewing Torah, I couldn't help but think about my own experience there. So I appreciate that you said that. Um, you're currently going through your second cycle of Dafyomi. Uh, have you found the experience different this time around? Yes, it's definitely different, if only because you're constantly playing the game of, do I remember this? And also, where was I when I learned this? I have very strong visual memories of where I was when I learned various sigyot, also what time of year it was, right? The uncanniness of learning Masachet Yoma, or learning Masachet Pesachim in the weeks leading up to Yom Kippur. I remember when everyone around me is learn, like learning Hilchot Shua, and I'm deep in, you know, talking about Pesach Sheni or what have you. Um, so that was, um, that was very interesting, or like, yeah, I remember 
just thinking like, well, this is the Korban Pesach. I have to remind, keep reminding myself we're talking about the Korban Pesach because I keep thinking about Seder Avodah or whatever. Um, so, uh, so I'm constantly reminded of where we were in the calendar cycle when we learned on the, pre- the previous time. I would date, I put the dates on the tops of every daf that I learned. So I have that record. I'd stop doing that on this cycle, but, um, but it reminds me of where I was. Um, and uh, and it, it came up recently that sort of flashback element because my husband and I celebrated our Daf Yomi anniversary where we came to the Daf we had learned at our wedding. Um, and we knew this because we had both spoken about it at our wedding. It was in Bava Batra. Um, so that was um, very meaningful for both of us. I think, you know, there are so many ways that in Judaism we mark time and there's so many ways in which time is cyclical and all of those cycles map onto one another often in very beautiful ways and I think a regular commitment to learning especially when that learning is cyclical is just another ring that you're adding on to that beautiful multi-dimensional mobile um, and I think that has been very meaningful for me to hear the text resonating on so many levels not just in terms of what the text is saying but what the text evokes for me in terms of where I was when I learned it. Alana thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today I've really enjoyed listening to you and having a conversation with you. Thank you so much it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yeshiva University's podcast please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Thank you to Melissa Garcia from the Events Office for helping us book our studio. Until next time.